Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. There is a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zor, son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you, and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shalisha. But they did not find them, and they passed through the land of Shalem. But they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zaph, Saul said to his servant, who was with him? Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true, So now let us go there, perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming down out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just, be, just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find, you will find him. Before he goes up to the high place to eat, for the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up 
for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the, from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw, saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is, he it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the, of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them. For they have been found, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel. Is, is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the, the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of, of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, Put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, and when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he passed on, stop here before, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Thank you, Don. And we remember once again that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. And let's just ask the Lord's help as we look at this portion of scripture together. Bow with me, please. Heavenly Father, we come once again to you. And Lord, we, even as we sang um, earlier, Lord, that we are so aware that we need you every hour. Lord, that we need your sustaining mercy and grace. We need 
your spirit to uphold us, to continually strengthen our faith day by day, Lord, to give us understanding and insight into your word, Lord, for we know that the natural man cannot understand spiritual things, but it is as your spirit gives us uh, the enabling power to understand and to give light to our minds that we can see Christ, we can understand your word, and Lord, see who you are uh, through these things. And so we ask for your help and just acknowledge our need. I pray my words would be clear and uh, profitable to your people and that hearts would be eager to just receive your word as nourishing bread to our souls. And Lord, that you may increase our love for you, for Christ, and Lord, our desire to walk in obedience to your command. And we pray that you would comfort the brokenhearted, comfort the hurting. Lord, we pray that you would rebuke, Lord, the hard-hearted, and that you would plow up uh, the hardened soil by your word. And Lord, that you would draw near to those who uh, do not know you, that you may reveal yourself, and even today might be the day of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So this morning the title is Saul the King in Waiting, and we are continuing on in this study of First Samuel as we continue to see this story unfolding, and I know it's always a bit of a challenge because we likely, for all of you, are familiar with the story and you, you know what is going to happen and, and, and how this continues to unfold, but you could imagine um, reading this for the first time or even for those who lived in this day, not sure how things were going to unfold for them, um, not sure how God was going to continually lead them and guide them as a nation to protect them. And so uh, there's, a, there's a sense of uh, uncertainty as far as the, the original audience was concerned. And yet we see in this passage so clearly the wonder of God's providence, the wonder of God's gracious guiding through even the ordinary and mundane circumstances of life. God is bringing about a plan to establish a king in Israel. And the providence of God is one of the uh, most mysterious, but also the most comforting truths of Scripture. We see that God is in control of all things, and He, especially for His people, is orchestrating our lives in such a way that we are going to be eternally glad in Christ. And we know even Paul told the Romans that God is able to cause all things to work to, for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And we see that truth played out here in 1 Samuel as God is establishing the beginnings of the kingship, the monarch in Israel. In the uh, 1689 Confession of Faith in chapter 5, regarding God's providence, it says, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things, from the greatest to the least. By his perfectly wise and holy providence to the purpose for which they were created. He governs according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his will. His providence leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. And of course, there is enough truth there to 
to meditate on for, for months and, and years. But we see this truth playing out. God is a God who is closely involved in his people, in his creation, and is orchestrating things even through the ordinary and seemingly insignificant circumstances of life. And so as we look at um, this this morning, one other thing to keep in mind as well, to feel something of the importance of this moment in Israel's history, um, and, and David uh, last week led us through uh, chapter 8, where we have the elders of Israel approach Samuel, and they tell him, we, we, we look at your sons, they don't follow your way, they're, they're not... Um, men after your own character, and we demand a king. We want a king like the other nations to rule over us, to fight for us, to, to represent us. And as David pointed out last week, the problem wasn't so much that they wanted a king, but they were not desiring a king as God had prescribed through Moses in Deuteronomy we saw last week. And so the problem is not primarily that they desire a king, but that they do, or do not desire to follow God's instructions specifically for what sort of king they should have. But this is a big moment in the life of Israel. They are moving from a, a tribal uh, group of nations to that of one nation under a king. And we really have a hard time understanding this sort of switch in our Western world where we you know, have a sense of, of democracy and we, we represent. Um, you know, elect our officials that are supposed to represent us to the federal government and such. And, and so we have a hard time understanding even what tribalism would have looked like for them. But throughout the judges, we see that at times the various tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes, sometimes they're warring against each other and there's fighting amongst themselves. There's not really a, a national sense of unity and, 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 and purpose. Sometimes they come together to fight a common enemy. But at this point, the people of Israel are actually quite fractured. And under Moses and Joshua, they experienced some form of, of unity, some form of, of a national identity as they were delivered from Egypt and brought into the promised land. But as soon as they crossed over the Jordan, there was a fracturing of these 12 tribes. And, and there really was no sense of a clear national uh, identity uh, of his people other than their connection to Abraham but they tended to identify specifically with the heads of each tribe, the sons of Jacob. And so this is, is, a, is an incredible transition in the nation to move from this form of tribalism to that of a monarch under uh, the leadership of a king. One teacher pointed out the closest today we might look at is uh, even in, in modern Pakistan, where there is not really a unified government governing the, the nation, but it is a series of tribes that at times war against other tribes. Uh, at times they are, one may rise to a position of dominance, and, but really don't see this similar form of government that we maybe see in the West. Um, for example, in, in Pakistan, you may have the Taliban, uh, one tribe, you may have the Punjabi, the Saraki, the Sindhi, these various tribes we hear about, we hear about wars, we hear about uprisings, but they don't have that same sense of national identity. And that is all in the process of changing here in the book of 1 Samuel, this important time when God is himself going to guide and direct the process 
through which the king is established. And so we may think on the one hand, well, I thought God was opposed to the idea of a king. Didn't Samuel uh, rebuke them and, and warn them that they were rejecting God? So how is it that God is now guiding and directing this process for a king? And um, again, as we noted in, in Deuteronomy 17, God made provision for a king. But it was to be a king after his own heart who upheld the word of God. What the people of Israel here are wanting is their own sort of Goliath, if you will, a warrior king who will fight for them, who will defend them. And so this is important as we consider um, how God brings about the selection of Saul. And I just want to look this morning together for a few moments um, at, at this account. First of all, we'll see the description of Saul and then the directing of Saul and then the discovery of Saul as he realizes what is going on. So first the description, then the direction of Saul and the discovery. And we see in our chapter here this initial description of Saul and his family. He is a Benjamite, we're told. His father's name is Kish. We're given a little bit of a a genealogy uh, of his family, which is very common and important for the Israelite people to establish um, who they are. He is, in fact, an an Israelite in this sense and would be a a valid uh, candidate for the kingship. We're also told that his family is very wealthy and actually the New American Standard translates it as his father was a man of valor. So this may be an indication that not only is this family very wealthy, but this man is very possibly something of a warrior himself, a valiant man. And we're also told that Saul is is good looking, so he's handsome. In fact, we're told he's the most handsome in all of Israel. Uh, I don't know if they necessarily had any you know, form of beauty pageants in that day, but if there was to be some form of, of uh, challenge, we're, we're told that Saul would have won. Not only is he good-looking, but he is young, and he is a head taller than all of his fe- fellow countrymen. So if there ever was to be someone who looked the part of a king, this is the man. He seems to have everything going for him. He is good-looking, he is young, he comes from a wealthy family with possibly a father who is also valiant, and he is tall, and he comes from uh, the tribe of Benjamin, and even his name, Saul, means asked for or asked for of God. So quite literally, as the people are demanding a king, this is Saul, the one asked for, the one asked of God. The, The entire picture points us to the fact that this man seems to fit the bill of the desired king. But what is also important to note is we're not told really anything of Saul's character. We're not told anything here of Saul's uh, love for God, his love for God's word. Um, He seems quite ignorant as far as identifying the the priest uh, or Samuel. He doesn't seem to know much about Samuel. He doesn't recognize Samuel when he first meets him. It's the servant that actually seems to show more spiritual discernment than Saul. And this is a, if you flip just for a moment to 1 Samuel 16, um, just to note the contrast. I know we're jumping ahead a little bit here, but 1 Samuel 6, 16. 
when it comes time for God to select the sort of king that he had instructed Israel, David, a man after his own heart, and the sons of Jesse are being presented to Samuel in verse 6, we're told when they came in, Samuel looks at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so we see that in Saul, as impressive as this man may seem to be, there's already an indication that this is the man that the people wanted more than the man of God's own choosing. And we talked uh, in the past about how sometimes God will give us what we want. He will, ex- he will grant us our selfish requests, our desires that are opposed to his will, so that we will feel the emptiness of it. We will feel the, 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 the consequences even of our own foolishness at times, even as the prodigal son demanded his father's inheritance, demanded that he's given what belongs to him. And the father gives him the inheritance, not because he knows this is what his son needs, but he even wanting the son to feel maybe something of the emptiness. And the son, of course, squanders all of the inheritance that was given to him. And in the end, he is driven back to the father and experiences the father's grace and forgiveness. And so in a sense... Israel is getting the king they desire, but things will not go well uh, for Saul's rule as he shows himself to not be one who fears God above the praise of man or his own intentions. And we too have to continually remind ourselves that God is not impressed with externals. God sees the heart. He is not impressed with good looks. He's not impressed with stature, with strength, with wealth. God is looking for a heart that fears him, that delights in him. And so we have to be careful as we live in this very sensual culture that is so obsessed with the externals that we are continually reminding ourselves to um, come before God and and ask that he make us... uh, Godly, they give us a fear of him, that he help us to turn from the lusts of the flesh, to cultivate a spirit that is beautiful in the sight of God. In fact, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7, he says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life, and also for the life to come. Paul says, there is, there is some benefit to, to physical training and exercise and strengthening yourself. But he says, training yourself in godliness is a value in every way. And we need to be a people who emphasize the training in godliness. Even Peter, writing to the women in 1 Peter 3, 3, says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, Paul's not saying it's wrong to necessarily 
Um, you know, obviously you should wear clothing. Obviously it's fine to, to brush your hair and, and to, to make yourself presentable in that sense. But he's, Peter is saying, don't make the externals the main emphasis, the main obsession with your life. But let the beauty that you are seeking be this inner beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in God's sight. And so we see this description of Saul, and it seems to be very impressive. He seems to be the perfect candidate for a king of Israel insofar as the external appearances go. So we secondly then see the directing of Saul, not only this description, but we see how the Lord directs Saul to Samuel in his providence. And this is very uh, fascinating to, to look at. And we know that even in our own lives, we don't always understand. In fact, we rarely understand the reasons that things happen in the way that they do, at the time that they do, um, the, the various trials and struggles that the Lord brings us through. We, in the moment, we don't have the ability to perceive why this is part of God's plan. But in hindsight, we can look back and see how God has directed us, has shaped us, has even caused us to flee to himself. And so it is with this account. In, in the moment, all that Saul knew and his father, Kish, all they knew is their donkeys were missing. Their, their animals were gone. They were out of the pen. And for you who have livestock, you know the frustrating experience of having to go and find missing animals. Or even worse, I remember on the farm growing up, for some reason, often it was Sunday morning, it seemed, that the neighbor would call or somebody would call as they're driving by the house and say, oh, just letting you know your cattle are out in the neighbor's field. And I just wanted to let you know. And so now we have the next uh, hour or so madly chasing these animals through the farmer's field and dad dreading the phone call to the neighbor that I've damaged some of your crop and figuring out how they're going to you know, pay some of this damage back. And it can be a very uh, frustrating experience and certainly one does not think in the moment of missing animals that there is some divine purpose in this. It feels quite meaningless and with, without purpose. But here we find that it is through these very ordinary, even frustrating circumstances that Saul is led away from his father's house. He takes one of the servants with him and they just begin searching for these missing animals. And as it happens, they're passing through various land after land. And in verse 5, we're told, when they come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, uh, let us go back, lest dad begins worrying more about us than the animals. And what's interesting is uh, the land of Zuf, we know from chapter 1, is where Samuel's descendants come from, or the son of Zuf, was essentially Samuel's great great, great, great grandfather. So this is the area in which Samuel was from, Elkanah. And it just so happens that this is where Saul and the servant pause and begin evaluating this mission. They've been looking for these donkeys for days. They're not finding them. Samuel realizes, or Saul realizes, sorry, dad's going to begin to worry about us and there'll be a search party soon sent for us. So we should probably at this point return and just give up on this search. But the discerning servant realizes that there is a man of God close by. 
And he's thinking, well, we could go and ask the seer or prophet if he could help us know where the animals are, if they've returned home, uh, what would be the best course of action. And they come up with this plan to seek out the man of God and the servant is willing to offer up his uh, quarter shekel of silver as a form of offering or payment to the man of God. And so we have God in a very uh, fascinating way, but even through ordinary circumstances, directing Saul to Samuel. And it is remarkable to see how ordinary um, these events must have seemed. Um, They must have seemed quite random. Um, But in behind all of it, God himself is working and directing and guiding and leading. And we know even as the Proverbs tell us in Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And perhaps you at times have found yourself, uh, maybe you were just going to pick up some groceries, or you're going to pick up some parts, or maybe uh, you, know, you had an unexpected delay, and as it happens, someone comes across your path, and you're able to, to reconnect with them or talk with them. And um, maybe... Uh, It it develops into a a friendship or an opportunity to share Christ. And and as people of God, we need to be constantly aware of the fact that in God's providence, there there really are no coincidences in the Christian life. There are no accidents. There there is the, the kind hand of God that is constantly working and directing and guiding us, even when we may not have the ability to understand it. And we, we need to, to trust in his good providence, trust in his promises that he will, in fact, work all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, as he says in Romans eight twenty eight. And what is the good that Paul points out there in Romans eight twenty eight to which God is working? Well, it's certainly not that we always feel good or that we always experience health, wealth and prosperity. We're told the good that God is providentially working in your life as a child of God is conformity to Christ. That we would be conformed to the image of Christ and we would be brought into that final day when we are glorified with all the saints. This is the good to which he is working, which is why oftentimes it does not feel good because this is part of God's process of sanctification in our life. But we see that the the, the people of God are being faithful in what is before them. Saul had no idea as he's heading out that he was going to be appointed as the king of Israel. Um, And even Samuel is very much on a need-to-know basis. He was given some heads up from God about what was to happen. But certainly Samuel does not have the full understanding of God's secret and hidden will. And I think for us as Christians, sometimes we we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what God's going to do five years from now or a week from now or a a year from now. And, And we become obsessed with trying to know God's secret will for our lives when in fact we're called to simply be obedient with what God has put in front of us to be good stewards, to be faithful, trusting he will sovereignly guide and direct us. In fact, R.C. Sproul made the comment on this point of God's providence and trusting in it. 
He said many Christians become preoccupied or even obsessed with finding the will of God for their lives. If the will we are seeking is his secret hidden will or decretive will, then our quest is a fool's errand. The secret counsel of God is his secret. He has not been pleased to make it known to us. Far be it from being a mark of spirituality, the quest for God's secret will is an unwarranted invasion of God's privacy. God's counsel is none of our business. This partly why the Bible takes such a negative view of fortune-telling, necromancy, and other forms of prohibited practice. We are called to trust God is providentially working, trust his plan is unfolding day by day, and to be faithful and obedient and stewardly in what he has put before us. Even as we read together in our confession, he knows our frame, he knows that we are but dust, but his steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting for those who fear him. And so God providentially is working in all of these circumstances, bringing this man Saul to Samuel, that he would set the stage for the king of Israel to be established. And as the story continues, they decide that they will, in fact, search out this man of God. And then something very miraculous happens in the account, something that is very rarely seen even today, the two men stop and ask for directions. <laughs> but I know this is quite marvelous too, especially for you wives out there who so many times just want your husband to stop for a moment and just ask directions. Like, no, it's fine. We'll figure it out. We'll find it. Well, Saul and the servant uh, stop, we're told, at the outside of the city. And as it happens, some women were coming. They were going to draw water for the day. And they talked to them about where they might find the prophet of God. And they're told then that as it happens, uh, Samuel is actually coming to the city that day. He's coming to offer a sacrifice, probably a sacrifice that is voluntary, maybe tied to a fulfillment of a vow or of that nature, because it was these sacrifices which the worshiper could eat the meat. And oftentimes they did um, have a meal um, using the sacrificed offering as the meal. Other types of offerings, uh, they were not permitted to, to, to eat as much. So it, it seems this was probably the result of someone had fulfilled a vow or made a vow and they were offering up this voluntary sacrifice to God. Samuel, being the prophet of God, recognized by the people, even as the servant noted, Samuel had a reputation of honor that all that he said came to pass. And this reminds us in the call of Samuel in the beginning we were told that the Lord let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. He was a man who was established by God as a prophet, and his words came true because the Lord was with him. And so we have Samuel, um, as we read, told by God that this man Saul was coming, a man of Benjamin, and he would be the one who he was to appoint as the prince of his people, the one who would deliver them, from their enemies, Philistines, the one who would rule the people of Israel. And so there is this um, discovery then, as we look at, that Saul has. Not only is he directed to Samuel, but the discovery that God has selected him as the first king of Israel. And we find that he is uh, shocked by this news. 
as Samuel invites him not only to talk to him, but he's invited to this special feast. He is given a seat of honor. He is given the cut of meat that probably would have been Samuel's as the, the, the priest officiating the sacrifice. It was the honorary piece of meat that Samuel gives to Saul. And he tells him um, that the Lord has selected him. He makes this comment, is it in verse 20, is it not for you and for all your father's house? Um, oh, sorry. Um, and so back up to, yeah, verse, the second part of verse 20, sorry. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? And, and Samuel tells Saul, are you not the one that all of Israel is now desiring a king? like the nations, to be set over them, a king to lead them into victory, into battle, a king to to represent them. And Saul is obviously uh, shocked here. He, He says in verse 21, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why have you spoken to me in this way? He is he is shocked by this discovery that he is the one whom God has selected. And so he has a lot to process now. And then being brought into this feast and given this seat of honor and fed um, the portion that would have probably been Samuel's. And then Samuel brings him what seems to be to his own house where Saul and his servants spend the night with Samuel. He sleeps on the roof, which was usually sort of a a guest room in those days. And he's given this uh, lodging in the prophet's house and and Saul is, is making this discovery that God has chosen him to lead the people of Israel to be established as a king. And so what is God doing in all of this? Is he for the king of Israel or not? And, and this is one of the, again... As we consider God's providence, we consider God's sovereignty over all things. It's becoming apparent here that God has purposed a king over Israel. And this becomes the, one of the, the big uh, signposts, if you will, in the Old Testament, pointing us forward to Christ, the coming king of Israel. And God is establishing this. It's, it's incredible to see how God, in his purpose, to bring about Christ in the fullness of time, faithfully carries his people step by step. And even in the midst of their rebellion, even in the midst of their rejection of him, God is determined to bring about the Christ, the King. And so he's working in all of these things, ultimately, to prepare the way for the coming King. First, Israel will get the King they desire, the King of their choosing in many ways, Externally impressive, but then God will establish a king after his own heart, a king through which the Messiah himself will come. Not the tribe of Benjamin, but it will be the tribe of Judah who is established as the ruling clan of Israel. For from Judah, we're told, will come a king who will sit upon the throne forever and ever. And I think even for us, There's something within us that knows we are made 
to be ruled by a righteous king. There is something in us that desires to be guided, to be protected, to be taken care of. And even in the kids' catechism questions, we'll be coming up to um, the, the offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And the question is, why do we need a king? And this reminder that we need someone to, to care for us, to protect us. And this is never seen fully in any man um, of Adam, but it points us forward to Christ, who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in fact, Christ will reign as King over all of the earth forever and ever. And it is this kingdom that is being even pointed to here as God establishes Saul. It is God making way for the king of his own choosing and helping us see the foolishness of man's wisdom. And the psalmists at different times we know point us forward to Christ. In fact, in the New Testament, the book of Psalms is one of the most referenced books. And we have All of these comments that seem to be talking of maybe just David or a king in the time. But we know that these actually end up pointing us forward. In Psalm 45, for example, we read describing a king. But we we become uh, it becomes clear that this king must be Christ himself. Psalm 45 reads, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I am addressed. I address my verse to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. It says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments, you make glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts and the richest of people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king. With her virgin companions following behind her, with joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In the place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. And we find God pointing forward to this everlasting rule, which is realized in Christ. And though Christ came not as a man who was impressive externally in form and beauty, in fact, the prophet Isaiah tells us there was nothing about Christ that we should desire him, 
but he came full of grace and truth. He came that he would humbly lay down his life and suffer and die for sinners that we might be forgiven, that we might be brought into his banqueting table. And even in the kindness shown to Saul as Samuel uh, is pointing out that he is selected, do we not see something of God's kindness towards us? We who were the enemies of God, who were following after the, the, the passions of our flesh, who were following after the, power, the prince of the power of the air. And, and yet Paul goes on in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the greatness of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And he goes on and says this, For by grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. You see, we have been brought out of the darkness of this age to sit and feast with Christ, to feast upon not just the best cuts of meat, but upon the bread of heaven, that we might rule and reign with him forever and ever. And so I urge you, as we consider God's providence in establishing the king, just pointing us to Christ, if you have not come to Christ in faith and forsaken the inheritance from Adam, which only is death and bondage to sin, to to die to Adam and to come to Christ by faith, and say, God, forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me. I want, to, I want to live and to serve under the King of God's own choosing, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I urge you to rest in the providence of God. This is not easy. It is difficult for us to, to step one day, faith and not by sight, But even as we see God providentially working in these events, know that he is also providentially at work in you and in your life. And in the confession later on, in that same section under God's providence, it makes the statement, the providence of God in a general way includes all creatures, but in a special way, it takes care of his church and arranges all things to its good. And so I pray you feel something of that in your life. Trusting God is working especially for the good who are in Christ, his church, his bride. Even as we consider around the world today, many are persecuted for their faith, put to death, imprisoned. And we may think, how can such suffering work for their good? Well, when we are reminded that this life is but a breath, is but a brief time, Even as the authors of the New Testament tell us that that these momentary light afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, we realize that even the sufferings of this life in God's providence can be worked for good. And so let us rejoice in the providence of God and in the King of His choosing. And we'll close there this morning and uh, bow with me as we pray, please. Father, we come before you and we are just amazed at your patience, your, your diligence over thousands of years, Lord, to continually, faithfully bring about your promises, even when 
people uh, reject you, they, they turn their back upon your word, even through the evil intentions and plans of, of man. We know as Joseph told his brothers what they intended for evil, God meant for good. And we see that throughout the people of Israel as well, that through your plan and workings, you prepared the way for Christ, the King of Kings, to enter in. And Lord, that you have opened the door of salvation through Christ. We are invited to come and dine with you, Lord. And even as David prayed that you prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies, Lord, that we would know that fellowship and that the sweetness of your presence and your word. And God, that we might go to a world that, Lord, has been deceived into following the prince of the power of the air, that they might come and see Christ, Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that our life would be a pleasing aroma to you. Help us to rest in your providence, not seeking to uh, understand all of your plans and purposes and, and your secret will that is mysterious to us, but Lord, we'd be faithful day by day to walk in obedience to your word and independence upon your spirit. And I pray this all now in Jesus' name. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.